With all the ups and downs Ireland has faced, one thing remains unchanged. Nobody bakes soda bread like an Irish mother. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, Barry Maloney from County Cork proves that the once boring cuisine of Ireland has taken a sharp turn for the better, thanks to the Irish who've returned home after getting a taste of the world. If you mix those ingredients, those Irish ingredients from the roots with the multinational knowledge, you come up with fireworks. And from Ireland, we travel to the Pacific Northwest. There, the hydroelectric dams that now power the Internet have taken a big toll on native communities. Their whole culture was based on fish. And when that was lost, they really were lost as a people. Blaine Harden tells us how the Grand Coulee Dam has tamed the mighty Columbia River. With the construction of the dam, the river basically was turned inside out. From the kitchens of Ireland to the salmon runs on the Columbia. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. The source of the electricity that cooks your wild salmon may also be killing it. Wild salmon runs on the Columbia River have been threatened ever since hydropower dams were built to turn the river's currents into cheap energy. It's the electricity that powers everything from aircraft manufacturing to the kitchens of Seattle. And now, it powers the massive Internet servers that make Google, Yahoo, Bing, and the cloud possible. Coming up in a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, journalist Blaine Harden explains the dilemmas we face in managing the mightiest river in the Pacific Northwest. First, we're getting a taste of how much things have changed in the kitchens of Ireland in recent years. For ages, people traveled to Ireland in spite of the food. Now people actually go there for the food, and for good reason. With recent prosperity has come a huge improvement in Irish cuisine. Barry Maloney is a fellow tour guide and friend who lives in Kinsale. It's the cuisine capital of Ireland down on the south coast. He joins us for a discussion on eating your way across the Emerald Isle. Barry, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Rick. There was uh, somebody famous once wrote, Irish food isn't cuisine, it's penance. Whatever happened to that? Well, I have good news for you, Rick. There's been a revolution since then. Before, uh, Irish food was seen as a bit of a joke, and the punchline was potatoes. So your grandmother, probably the world was pretty small. Yeah, yeah. All her ingredients was, you know, she had the original five-mile menu. The five-mile menu. You know, everything that she ate came from within five miles. She would only go to the grocery shop just to buy tea. And the, it, probably everything. half of her menu was uh, potatoes. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was young, I thought the potato had been in Ireland forever. But, of course, it was our new world treasure. It came from Peru huh. to Ireland in the early 1600s and eventually led to a huge tragedy in our in our. Of course, history. 1848, the potatoes, some uh, fungus hit them. They didn't grow. And uh, Ireland, what, you lost half your population after the yeah, famine or something. Yeah. So there's a big, you know, it's a big story in Irish history is a potato. And today, other foods have appeared out of that. The next most famous Irish food is something simple like soda bread. Right. And that came about because the Irish didn't want to go back to the potato. And at the same time, luckily, American wheat was cheap, soda came from Turkey, and the magic missing ingredient was buttermilk. Mix the three, what have you got? A bread without yeast that someone can make in the home very simply without all the kneading that a yeast bread needs. You can make soda bread. And any Irish person receiving the smell of soda bread cooking, it's like, you know, who was it? Proust? Uh-huh. Smelling the tea and it took him back to his childhood. Oh, yeah. Remembrance of things past. Oh. And nobody bakes soda bread like an Irish mother. Oh. Everyone's got their secret recipe, you know? I love the Irish soda bread. And sometimes you hit some magic soda bread. What Irish food has got is two very strong ingredients. One is the history, the rich history in terms of our melting pot of, you know, Norman, Viking, English, Celtic influence. And on top of that, what are the Irish famous for? Travelling. 
So the modern Irish have traveled and seen what's going on in food. And objectively, we can come back and that becomes a real melting pot from which has grown many success stories and great restaurants, great new recipes based on the old. So without losing our sense of tradition, we have moved Irish food forward in leaps and bounds. So you've incorporated the rest of the world into your own roots. Ireland has had, of course, its famous economic boom, the Celtic tiger economy, which now has pretty much uh, lost its steam. But was the economic good time something that jump-started this appreciation of cuisine? It brought those travelers home. So those travelers that were all across the world being influenced by multicultural food elements came back to Ireland and realized in an island nation off the west of Europe with the rich Atlantic sea and the the air, the fresh air, we have got the best food in Europe. And if you mix those two... The best ingredients. The best ingredients. And if you mix those ingredients, those Irish ingredients from the roots with the multinational knowledge, you come up with fireworks. That that led to an opening of many, many restaurants. And now that you mention that, a lot of my favorite restaurants are run by entrepreneurial chefs who did work in other countries. True. Yeah, there's a great... Traveled all over the world, backpackers picking up ideas in Thailand, chefs working in the United States, people in France. True. And many of those restaurants have survived. And it means today you can get extremely good value in traveling in Ireland, you know? All the Michelin star restaurants in Dublin have... Of course, they don't stoop to call it early bird options. They'll call it the pre-theater. Pre-theater, but that would be the early bird special. Yeah, early bird special. So if you want to eat well in Ireland, you can go to a fine restaurant before what time? Before 7 o'clock or something. You get the early bird special. Let's not call it that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, one of our uh, famous uh, chefs at the moment is Martin Shanahan on Fishy Fishy. And we've got Martin coming in on the line right now. So we're going to call Kinsale in just a moment. And tell us about the town of Kinsale, first of all. Uh, the town of Kinsale, it's uh, the gourmet capital of Ireland. Okay, self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed, I think. But when you say that, you have to live up to it. Yeah. If you set the bar high and people come, you have to live and up to it. And there are high expectations. And when I heard that Kinsale, it's a, it's a beautiful town with or without the food on the south coast of Ireland. Mm. I love it. It's your best stop before you get to the Ring of Kerry. When I heard it's the you know gourmet capital, I said, yeah, show me. I got there and it is just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to fine little restaurants pubs with, with gourmet food, beautiful, beautiful settings, and the most popular restaurant in town is... Fishy Fishy. Fishy Fishy Cafe, and we've got Martin Shanahan on the line from Southern Ireland. Hello, Martin. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Rick, good afternoon. How are you doing? Hi, Martin. Martin, Hi, I got, Barry, I got Barry doing? Maloney here, Martin. Yes, I'm listening to Barry there. He's making me sound hungry there for that soda bread there. He described it so <laughs> wonderfully well, you know. Martin, thank you for joining us. Now, you're in Kinsale on the south coast of Ireland... That's right. Now, why is Kinsale so famous for its cuisine? Well, I think, number one, it's just such a picturesque uh, fishing village. You know, it's just one of those places you come to and you just fall in love the minute you drive into the town, you look at the harbor there, you see all the fishing boats, you know, and it just gives you a yearning for seafood. Now, I understand, Martin, that you were trained uh, or you were a chef in the United States. That's right. I worked in San Francisco for a couple of years. And I worked in the Huntington Hotel up in Knob Hill. On Knob Hill? Yes, up in Knob Hill. And I spent almost three years there and had great time, you know, and learned so much about the multicultural cuisine of California and that, you know. I mean, I brought a lot of that back to Ireland, and we opened up Fishy Fishy Cafe in Kinsale. And it's been a fantastic success. So when you think about the value of working as a chef in San Francisco... 
it's this uh, appreciation of uh, different cultures, cuisine, and this fusion sort of thing, and then you, you brought that back to Ireland. Is that the most important thing you picked up with your experience in the States? Yes, I would think so, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, one of the other things, I mean, we source all our seafood local. So when people come, and especially Americans, but when people come from all around the world, I believe, like when I go to San Francisco or when I go to Seattle, I want to eat local produce. I want to eat local fish and local vegetables, and that's what we do in Kinsale, you know? The restaurant scene in Kinsale is very competitive. What has been your success to keep above it on the race there? Oh, yeah, but, I mean, that's what keeps us on our toes. I mean, competition is what it's all about, you know? And, I mean, the more restaurants, for the size of the town, I think we have a town with a population of maybe three and a half to 4,000 people, and we have, between restaurants, bars, and cafes, we have about 60 eating houses. <laughs> wow. You know, is a huge selection for such a small town, yeah? So what's your success? Why is Fishy Fishy the most crowded restaurant in Kinsale? It's all about the produce. It's all about the local seafood. You know, I mean, all our fishermen, we have a wall with all their photographs dedicated to them and a little caption under it that says, Thou shalt have a fishy on a little dishy. Thou shalt have a fishy when the boys come in. And the boys are the fishermen, you know, (laughs) and they're the guys that land the fish to us every day, you know. So, Martin, when you're traveling around Ireland uh, and you want to be sure to get a good meal outside of Kinsale, what do you do? What do you look for? Well, I think, you know... For myself, being in the business for a long time, I would have a lot of friends that would be chefs and restaurateurs and that. And I would know all the guys and I would know the, the kind of inner circle as such, you know. I suppose, again, it's all local. It's, it's local produce. It's real food. That's what people want. Real food. That's the beautiful thing about Ireland. And you know that uh, so much of the produce and the fish and so on will be very fresh. Let's talk about some traditional dishes with both uh, Martin from Fishy Fishy Cafe calling on the phone right now from the south of Ireland, the town of Kinsale, K-I-N-S-A-L-E, and Barry Maloney, who's in our studio here. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about eating in Ireland, and when you're traveling around Ireland as a tourist, you're going to probably want some traditional dishes. I I would imagine, Martin, you would think, well, you should go with the modern fusion cuisine and and, uh, the the French-Irish specialties or whatever. But, Martin, if you were recommending... A good traditional Irish dish, what would be one that you'd, you'd uh, go for? Well, I guess, again, depending on the locality. I mean, if you're in Galway, then I would recommend you go with the native oyster if you're in Galway. If you're in Kerry, I would say go with the lamb because they have some fantastic lamb up in the hills there, you know, and on the mountains in Kerry. Um, I mean, again, if you're, in, if you're in Cork and if you're along the coastline, right, go with seafood, go with fish, go with summertime, go with crab, go with lobster, wild salmon, some beautiful wild salmon with some hollandaise sauce, and new potatoes, buttered new potatoes, and maybe some fresh asparagus. I mean, you know, mm. something like that is just magnificent. Yeah? That sounds good. And Barry, what's some advice you would give a, a traveler looking for a good traditional uh, standard? Well, my advice would be follow the steps of the Queen because uh, Queen Elizabeth herself came to Ireland and she went to the English market in Cork City. It's a food market. And, of course, when she came in the door, she was presented with a hamper of goods from all the market stall A holders. big basket filled big, with all of the produce of that county. Big basket full of, you know, the, the buttered eggs, the duck eggs, the salmon, the seafood. And little did she know, she was delighted to receive it, but little did she know she was dealing with crafty Cork men <laughs> because ever since they've been selling the Queen's hamper. The Queen's hamper. So that would be a, a collection, a, a variety. A replica of what she got. So oh, if, nice. you want to, if you want to press your mother-in-law, the Queen's hamper is what to buy. And in that English market, there's a lovely restaurant called the Farmgate Cafe, 
where everything is sourced from the market. Wow, and there you can, have, you can have bacon and cabbage, you can have tripe, tripe, drasheen, tripe drasheen, black pudding, all these kind of um, quirky Irish foods, which come from the offcuts of meat. But we turned uh, the offcuts into delicacies. When you think of Irish cuisine, of course, when you go to Ireland, a traveler will think of the, the horrible famine in the, in the famine heritage when the potato crop failed. What survives today that reminds you of your famine heritage? I suppose, look, we still, we still appreciate the humble potato. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we do, we do appreciate it, but we've moved on from it, like, and we've learned to create dishes that we just don't need a potato in it, you know? So there's not the, the reliance on the potato as before. As before, no, we're not. We're not. And I think that is probably, again, look, from getting tourists, visitors from America and from around the world and that, yes, they want to eat the local produce, but they, want, they give us a couple of ideas and they give us a couple of twists on it, you know, and little ideas themselves that we can incorporate, but still using local food. More in a moment from Chef Martin Shanahan from Kinsale, Ireland, and from local guide Barry Maloney as we dive deeper into the latest trends in Irish cuisine, and as we get Martin's tips for what makes the best-tasting Irish stew. We're at 877-333-7425, or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. We'll explore the ups and downs of the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest in just a bit. But right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're on the line with Martin Shanahan in Kinsale, Ireland. He's one of Ireland's hot chefs who's raised the island's culinary standards when he and his wife opened what quickly became one of Ireland's top seafood restaurants. They've written a book called Irish Seafood Cookery, and Martin hosts a TV series on Irish television called Martin's Mad About Fish. We're also joined by Barry Maloney, a tour guide based in Kinsale. So, Martin, when you make a good Irish stew, what do you put in a stew to make it really good? Oh, you gotta get you gotta get the best of lamb. You gotta get young lamb. Young lamb. You need carrots. You need onions. You need a little bit of celery, some leeks. Um, I like to put a little bit of turnip in it as well, yeah. A little bit of fresh thyme, and of course the potato then as well, yeah. And just chop them all up and just simmer them out and the younger the lamb the better you know and I mean that will give it the lovely sweet taste yeah? and just simmer it for probably somewhere about an hour and a half to two hours and finish it off with a little bit of chopped fresh parsley it's, it's hard to beat you know nice hey when you were talking about your Irish stew you stressed young lamb I know that a lot of people uh, think of mutton which is the opposite right in, in what case would you actually prefer mutton an old lamb 
or would you ever? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do you can do mutton. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, you know, and you can do a nice uh, boiled egg of mutton with caper sauce or something like that. You know, <laughs> boiled egg mutton and and caper sauce. Leg, boiled leg of mutton. Oh, boiled uh, leg, leg and mutton. Yeah, the boiled leg of mutton with a caper sauce, which is a white sauce, a white cream sauce with some capers in it. Yeah, and it just takes that earthiness off the lamb. Yeah. Very nice. Or the mutton. Sorry, Martin, you're a, sort of a Renaissance man. There's more to you than fish. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, fish has always been my love. From the minute I started to train to be a chef and dealing with all different types of produce, but fish, to me, is, is king, you know. It's so easy, it's so, so healthy, and it's, it's such a pleasure to cook, you know. What's your most popular way to serve salmon in Kinsale? Uh, when we have salmon in season in the summertime, I like to, again, I like to poach it, poach in a little court bullion, and finish it off with some lemon-scented hollandaise sauce, some fresh asparagus and new potatoes. And do you know what? I could die and go to heaven after it. Wow. Martin, there's only half of America listening now. Can you tell us a secret recipe from your restaurant? Well, probably one of our most popular dishes is a warm salad of chili seafood, believe it or not. And that is something I would have taken back from San Francisco with me 20 years ago. And what we have is we do a nice uh, mix of organic leaves, and we toss them in a little bit of roast red pepper dressing. And then for the warm salad of chili seafood, I use a firm white fish like a monkfish or a red garnet maybe, uh, some salmon, some prawn, some crab. And then we just saute them off in some Donegal rapeseed oil. And rapeseed oil has become very popular in Ireland. Then we finish it off with a little bit of ginger, spring onion, coriander, a small bit of chili, and a squeeze of lime juice. Pop that over the salad with some parsnip chips, and you know what? You, you're in heaven. It's lunchtime here, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Martin! All right, what's on the menu tomorrow? What's the special? Uh, tomorrow we have John Dory, and we're doing the John Dory on a bit of cream savoy cabbage with some tomato, lime, and coriander salsa, and it's, we're serving it, believe it or not, tomorrow with some crispy potatoes. All right, Martin Shanahan from Fishy Fishy Cafe in Kinsale on the south coast of Ireland. Thanks for calling in. Not at all, Rick. Look after yourself, and Barry, enjoy your time in Seattle. See you soon, Martin. All right, take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye. I didn't want to talk with Martin about this old, tired, uh, traditional Irish dishes no. too much, but let's just quickly review these because people who are tourists, mm-hmm. they're curious about boxty, for instance. What is boxty? Uh, boxy is a potato pancake. So just a basic potato pancake. Can you eat that in a savory way at dinner or something? Yeah, it's the base for many savory dishes. Kolkanan. So, Kolkanan is a potato mashed with a kale or cabbage mixed through it. Do people still eat that? Yeah, yeah. It's called, in the north of Ireland, it's called champ. It's a kind of a peasant's dish? Or uh, not a peasant's, yeah. I mean a yeah. farm dish or something like this? Yeah. Coddle. Coddle is a kind of a, a stew. With like pork. an Irish stew, but with uh, bacon strips. Okay, strips of bacon, right? Strips of salty bacon, famous in Dublin. And black pudding. Black pudding is a it's a blood sausage. Blood it, sausage. It so comes, curdled blood. Yeah, it comes from the uh, the offcuts of the rich meat that would have been exported out of Ireland traditionally. Ah, too. Okay, so the 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 little um, rough little bits that don't get exported, they yeah. kept in it, the, Like historically, know. Ireland fed the British Navy. And we were left with the offcuts. So you we ate the scraps. Were, so we're very inventive, and we came up with these. Uh, right. uh, black pudding is the most famous, but yet black pudding, you will see it in some Michelin star restaurants in Dublin. Clonakilty black pudding. All right. So it has come full circle. Oh, well, then, the happy days when troubles we knew not. 
and our mothers made coal cannon in the little skillet pot. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves, and at the moment we're eating our way across Ireland with the help of Barry Maloney. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Katie's on the phone in Vancouver, B.C. Katie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Barry. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, Katie. I just wanted to share, um, my husband and I traveled to Ireland in August 2010, and we are on a pretty tight budget when we travel but we were so impressed, even eating really cheaply, how good the food was. Even the simple things like bread and butter when we would have picnic lunches and things like that were just delicious. I was wondering if there's like a secret to the Irish butter. <laughs> I don't know why it tastes so much better than the stuff we get over here. <laughs> yeah, great question. You've, you've stumbled on a, a big part of our history because butter, historically in Ireland, was seen as a sign of wealth and luxury. Oh, yeah. This is long before cholesterol was uh, decided to be somehow bad for us, you know. <laughs> Butter and fatty foods were a luxury. Well, if uh, you're starving yeah. in the countryside, the more fat, the better, I would Definitely, think. definitely. And uh, the secret really is in the soil. And right. beneath the soil is the rich limestone base. You get some nice butter on some beautiful soda bread? Oh, yeah, it's incredible. You know, if you stand a barrel of Irish milk and let it rest, the cream will settle to the top and you can dip your hand deep in it into the cream without touching the milk. Ah. So it's the richness of the Irish milk, which comes from the cow, which comes from the grass, which comes from the soil and the limestone base. As you said that, I was almost getting turned on. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry. I just, I would ask you to say it again, but I'd completely lose my frame of mind. (laughs) It's the soda bread as well, you know, the soda bread. I I presume you had the soda bread. Yeah, we went to a couple of different bakeries, and every bakery we went to was so good. One thing uh, people overlook in Irish food is breakfast. And one of my favorite places to stay in Galway, it's a little B&B called Petra House. And Joan, when you open the door, you come in with your bags, you're tired, you're moving in. Guess what you smell? Fresh soda bread. Ah, fresh soda bread. And you know you're going to have that in the morning. Or you could, she'll give you a scone right there and then, you know. You know, talking about the great dairy products, Denise emails us from Santa Cruz, California. She says, for the best ice cream in the world... Go to Murphy's in Dingle. According to the owners, one of the things that makes their ice cream taste so good is fresh local milk from the endangered Kerry cow. Murphy's, you're taking me right back to one of the best food festivals in Ireland, the Dingle Food Festival. Yes. And guess when it happens? October. Off season. Why is that? It's a community celebration of food. It's a community-driven festival. Great. And if you can coincide your visit to Ireland when a festival is happening, you imagine walking through Dingle and every establishment is offering you food from tuna to steak to teriyaki salmon to mm. a roast pig to the dingle ice cream, Murphy's. And then you've got, of course, you've got Murphy's Pub across the and road And then you've got well. Murphy's Pub, I was going to say. <laughs> the whole town that night is a cacophony of uh, happy sounds, music, and uh, revelers in the different pubs. Yeah. That's just a classic Irish scene. Katie, thanks for your call. Thanks very much. I know. Come back soon, Katie, to dingle. <laughs> Laura's on the phone in Seattle. Laura, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Just wanted to mention that last summer my mother and I uh, visited Ireland, and one of the places we visited was uh, Kilkenny. And in Kilkenny, I believe there's a restaurant called Caras. Caras. We had probably the best sticky toffee pudding I've ever could have imagined in my life. Um, it was wonderful. So good we had to come back mm-hmm. the next night. <laughs> so what is it about a, a sticky pudding? Describe that to us. Um, the sticky toffee pudding is sort of like layers of, of breading mixed in with sort of a, um, gosh, my mouth is watering even thinking about it, uh, sort of a 
coffee syrup. And, and, and sauce and syrup, yes. Yes, yeah. thank you. And they they happen to top theirs off with whole cream. So, so just helps. a dollop of cream on the top of that. Yeah, yeah. Nice low-calorie, um, uh, nice healthy low-cal treat. Well, you know, after a day on the, the Ring of Kerry, it, it, it evens out, right? That It does even out. That's the great <laughs> thing about an island because yeah. you're out there breathing in the fresh air, exercising, yeah. climbing up to the top of those hills. Yeah, most people visiting Ireland, it all comes out calorie balanced. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a while. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best thing. <laughs> Lots Irish of dancing and, right. and hiking and you can enjoy the cream. Yes, indeed. So that was that was probably one of the most wonderful things we, we enjoyed. I've sought it out here in Seattle and it, nothing's the same. You know, a lot of times when you've been traveling, you fall in love with something, you come home and it's just not quite the same. My hunch is part of it is the environment. I mean, when you're there surrounded by Ireland and you have something that's very Irish, you could eat the same thing in, in the States, but it wouldn't quite be right. Yeah, true, Rick. A good example of that is if you visit the Iron Islands. Yeah. The salt in the air. Yes. And yeah. the hiking and the sunshine. When you come back to Galway, you know where you got to go? Fish and chips. Yes. Into McDonald's. You'll see people queuing out the door. What's the name of the place? McDonald's Fish and Chips. It's famous all across Ireland. Yeah. And okay. Anyone going to Galway will go to McDonald's for fish okay. and chips. But after the Iron Islands, it's, a, it's an experience because you get that... It's not a greasy batter. It's like a tempura batter. Right. The white, pure, pristine cod inside and nice kind of soft, chunky chips. And you've got the smell of the beach and you've got the sound of yeah. the seagulls and, the, and you've your, got the wind in your face. Your face is weather-beaten and kind of yeah. rosy. And, and, your, and, your, and your glasses are fogged up from stepping in out of the cold. That's it, exactly. Oh, that sounds very nice. Wonderful. Laura, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Happy Laura. Travels. Barry, this interview has just made me hungry. Yeah. It's made me hungry for <laughs> Irish food, and it's made me hungry to go to Ireland. You're traveling around the United States right now. When you get home after being on the road, what's the first dish you're going to have to let your stomach know you're back home? Uh, when I go home, the first thing I head for is smoked salmon. You know why? Because that was the ancient food of Ireland. Can you imagine how they invented smoked salmon? You know, they were cooking salmon on a, on a spit, turning it over an oak wood burning and realized that somehow this preserved the fish. And so what I'll simply do is I'll have barbecue smoked salmon on a soda bread, nice butter and a squeeze of lemon just to finish it. The nice pure taste of salmon, the sprightly taste of lemon and the crunch of the fresh soda bread. I'm closing my eyes right now and I am in Ireland. And I'm home. Oh baby. Slancha. (laughs) Slancha. You're coming to Ireland. (laughs) Slancha. <laughs> From feast to famine, Ireland's known both all too well. Travel with Rick Steves' producer, Sarah McCormick, sends us this snapshot of what she learned about the Ireland her ancestors left behind during the potato famine in the middle of the 19th century. Sarah visited three heritage sites to learn the emigrant stories in Dublin, County Cork, and County Mayo. I'm walking alone along the north bank of the River Liffey that runs through Dublin. The boardwalk is practically deserted, well away from the touristy crowds south of the river. And then I happen upon a group of people. Like me, they are heading east, toward a wooden tall ship moored on the riverbank up ahead. They are all incredibly tall and impossibly thin, and the expressions on their faces make me want to look away. They are dressed in rags and their feet are bare. One of the men has a lifeless child slung over his shoulder. A hungry-looking dog follows them. Of course, they are statues, depicting 19th-century famine victims, heading to a ship that will sail them out of their hungry country. 
I'm standing on the decks of a famine ship, a 150-foot-long wooden tall ship, like the one that brought my own Irish ancestors to the New World during the Irish potato famine. Our tour guide, Paul, is talking about what the Irish call the Great Hunger, when a blight decimated the potato crop in the mid-19th century. Under British rule, Irish tenant farmers eked out a desperate living on small plots of rented land. Because the potato yielded a higher number of calories per acre than any other available crop, millions of Ireland's poor relied on it as their primary source of food. Beginning in 1845, a fungus destroyed the potato crop several years in a row. No significant help arrived from England or anywhere else, and at least one million Irish died of starvation and disease. Another million emigrated on ships like these. Of course, 1847 was the worst year. It was known here as Black 47. And not only were people dying from starvation, but also huge outbreaks of disease, especially the likes of dysentery, cholera, and then a huge outbreak of typhus, which became known as famine fever or ship's fever. And therefore, ships became known as coffin ships. We duck around the rigging and descend into the ship, down a steep set of stairs to a cramped cabin. The ceilings are low and there are no windows. Narrow wooden bunks line the walls. Built as a cargo ship meant to carry only 40 people, it generally carried over 200 passengers on its voyages. Mortality rates aboard ships like these were around 30%. Toilets were non-existent on the original. It was just buckets and chambers and throwing it overboard. When people came on board, they would find wherever they could to sleep. People taking turns in sleeping, anyone traveling alone, they would share with complete strangers. The ship I'm on is actually a modern, seaworthy replica of a famine ship called the Jeannie Johnston. Inside its cramped cabin, there are life-sized wax models representing actual people who traveled on the Jeannie Johnston, some of whose stories have been tracked down. There would have been a lot of women on board, indentured servants, or the likes of Mary Pendergast in the corner down here to my right. She has a letter in her hand. Do you see it? November 16, 1852. My dearest sister, we're delighted to hear that you decide to come and stay at myself and me hall in New York. The children are so looking forward to meeting you, and we are dying to hear of news from home. God bless and protect you on your journey, your loving sister Maggie. About 160 miles away, on the southern coast, is Cove, spelled C-O-B-H. Estimates are that during the height of the famine, 2.5 million Irish sailed out of Cove in less than a decade. Playing host to so many sad partings earned Cove the nickname, the saddest place in Ireland. The Cove Heritage Centre on the waterfront is a museum that tells the story of the famine immigrants. It also has an exhibit about the Titanic, which picked up its last passengers right here in Cove before heading out into the Atlantic. Out on Ireland's west coast in County Mayo, facing the New World, there's another ship you can visit. It's the National Famine Monument, and it sits alone in a grassy field. This ship is Ireland's largest bronze sculpture, Skeletons of famine victims form the ship's rigging. I find this sculpture even harder to look at than the statues walking along the riverbank in Dublin. They at least had a chance of making it. Poverty and emigration didn't end with the famine. 
If you walk into a pub in Ireland, before the night is over, you'll hear the band play a song about sad goodbyes and longed-for reunions. When Ireland's Celtic tiger economy boomed back in the 1990s, the tide turned. Ireland became a place to come back to. But with the financial crisis of recent years, good jobs are scarce and emigration from the island is on the rise again, especially among the young. On my way to the airport to fly home, my cab driver's eyes well up when he tells me about his two daughters, both in their 20s. He's just sent them to New York to stay with friends, where they can find work. You can learn more about the Jeannie Johnston Tall Ship and Famine Museum in Dublin. It's online at J-E-A-N-I-E Johnston.ie. And the Cove Heritage Museum is at C-O-B-H Heritage.com. We'll focus on the life and death of the Columbia River next. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Since the days of Lewis and Clark, the legendary Columbia River has been a key to developing the Pacific Northwest. The massive river provided the 20th century with cheap electricity thanks to the hydropower dams that were built along its course. The dams were hailed as a marvel, a non-polluting way to power the factories that built America's aircraft for World War II. Today, they provide the megawatts needed for major components of the Internet. But as Seattle-based journalist Blaine Harden has learned, Harnessing a river for cheap energy comes with a price. Ever since his father joined the rush of workers who moved to the Northwest to build Grand Coulee Dam, the river's story's been personal for Hardin. Hardin has chronicled the stories of people who rely on the river and the competing interests that result in his recently updated book called A River Lost, The Life and Death of the Columbia. Blaine Hardin's website is blaineharden.com. That's spelled B-L-A-I-N-E-H-A-R-D-E-N. Blaine, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. This is an interesting thing, isn't it? The the dynamic between respect for the environment, in the case of the Columbia, respect for the uh, Indian heritage, and also the need for power. Uh, how do you see that dynamic playing out in the Columbia River, the mightiest river in the west of the United States? Well, the trade-off is, is really an extraordinary one. The amount of power that comes from the Columbia River, it provides more than half the electricity for the Pacific Northwest. 
giving us the cheapest electricity in the country. And it's clean. Uh, it's clean. It does not cause global warming. It's, it's actually more valuable with each passing year. And yet at the same time, the construction of 14 big dams on the main stem of the Columbia really changed the river, uh, killed it in some ways, turned it into a series of ponds between concrete plugs. It devastated salmon and it devastated uh, Indian people who lived along the river and who depended on the salmon for food, for religion, and for their way of life. So what's the answer? I mean, you are intimate with the river, you love the river. Is it a tool and a resource that can be harnessed, or is it a sacred thing that we should protect and, and not benefit from in a material way? Well, I think it's both, and I think that the governments of the region have come to grips with both, but it's taken a long time to come to grips with it. Can you have your material cake and, and your spiritual environmental one at the same time? No, you can't have it all. <laughs> but what happened at the beginning was that the engineers ruled the roost. They ran the river, created the dams, and the original plan for Bonneville Dam, which is the lowest dam in the river, the one that's closest to the Pacific, the original plan for that dam did not include fish ladders. So the engineers, had they had their way, would have wiped out fish in the entire Columbia snake system. And that what was, happened? Well, wiser heads prevailed. So can we have that energy and protect the salmon at the same time if it's done conscientiously and, and honestly? Well, you can if you go above Chief Joseph Jam, which doesn't have any fish ladders, and neither does Grand Coulee. And so they wiped out all the salmon and wiped out the Indian culture. And they had the, the gall to name it Chief Joseph Dam. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, it, it was engineers, people who, who studied how to bust up concrete in Denver for the uh, Bureau of Reclamation. These are the people who ran the river for a very long time. But Grand Coulee was the dam that, that actually provides the bulk of the power to the Pacific Northwest even now. And it had no fish ladders. Now, let's uh, talk about Grand Coulee, because it is quite a wonder. In your book, you talked about how Truman actually said, without the Grand Coulee Dam, we could not have won World War II. Well, it did a number of things. It was blessed in timing as well as in substance. It's the biggest concrete structure in North America when it was built, and it still is. And it came online in time for World War II. So it provided electricity for fabricating airplanes in Seattle, seeded the wealth of Boeing, and the wealth of the entire Pacific Northwest, ship construction in Portland. It also sent a secret load down to Hanford, which helped to fabricate the plutonium that was used in the second bomb dropped on Nagasaki and helped end World War II. Uh, and it, it really was a critical factor in helping the United States to win World War II. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Blaine Harden, and Blaine's book is A River Lost, The Life and Death of the Columbia. Blaine, you call your book A River Lost. H how is the river lost? It's providing us all this energy. We can vacation on it. We can water ski on it. How is it lost? Well, the river that existed prior to the concrete plugs was the biggest and most productive salmon highway on Earth. 16 million salmon a year uh, went up that river. And with the construction of the dam, the river basically was turned inside out. Rather than flowing in a big freshet to the Pacific in the early midsummer, that flow was held up and the water was stored until winter when people in the Pacific Northwest need electricity to heat their homes. So the river was basically it's like neutered. A, it's like a faucet then. So yes. it is it it's, is it's run very much like a faucet. It's a big faucet and, to power Seattle and the rest of the Northwest. Right. And it's adjusted second by second 
based on the power needs of the people who live all the way from Seattle down to Southern California. Talk about how power is morphing now into a marriage of wind and river. And uh, it's interesting that you see both now along the Columbia. Yeah. What's interesting is water and wind tend to be in the same place. Uh, It blows down the, the gorges and valleys cut by the river. So most of the tens of thousands of wind turbines that have been built in the Pacific Northwest have been built in these gorges. And they're also close to the big tie lines, the transmission lines. There's an efficiency there because you've already got right. the method to transmit the energy. Yeah. And the wind power taps right. into that for right. like a twofer. And it works without producing any hydrocarbons. Very uh, almost utopian. I mean, it's a green sort of thing. It's the gift that keeps on giving, except for the 16 million salmon. Yeah. Now, reading your book, I also learned, and this is something I never even thought about, that the Columbia River is a big part of the equation for Google and for email going around all over this planet. This has happened in the past 10 years. Power along the Columbia River is still really cheap by U.S. standards. So Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, and others have gone down to the river and made deals with the utilities, the public utility districts, the PUDs, that own some of the dams. And they've gotten a really good rate for guaranteed power for their server farms. And now this has given every person on Earth who uses a computer or a smartphone a stake in the damming of this river. And I was also reading that there's this controversy going on or the rethinking of these concrete slabs. And you said there's a trend where they're actually ripping out the dams, smaller ones, I guess, but it's a huge trend. You mentioned there's 500 dams either taken out or planned to be taken out. Right now, there's some big dams that are coming out in the Pacific Northwest. In the Elwha, two dams were removed in the past year. Is that because they're just inefficient, or are people actually having a heart for uh, the environmental concerns well, and Native American concerns? the dams weren't making a lot of electricity, and they were causing a lot more environmental havoc than they were worth. Okay. So those two dams have been removed, and the Elwha is going to be restored as a salmon river. The third biggest salmon river in the Pacific, in the, in the country, actually, the Klamath, four dams on that river will be removed in the coming years. An agreement has been made, and that'll be the biggest dam removal project in the history of the world. However, the big dams on the Columbian Snake are not close to coming out. They produce a lot of power, and there's a tremendous amount of political will to keep those dams in place. However, there are four dams on the lower Snake that don't produce great deal of power compared to the havoc they have caused for salmon. And there has been a push by environmental groups, and it's been mentioned by federal judges who run the river now, that maybe those dams should come out to Hmm. protect endangered salmon in the snake system. You went down the river on on a freight barge. What are the attractions for tourists? Let me first say that the Columbia River is not a friendly, warm and snuggable river. It's cold, and it's swift, and it's kind of scary. Jonathan Rabin, the great outdoor writer who lives in Seattle, he, you know, he said it's not the kind of river that you can warm up to. And in fact, that's true. It cuts through the desert fast and cold, and you can fish in it. You can recreate on it behind the dams, but it's cold and it's dangerous. It, it, it doesn't have that sort of lazy, romantic, music-making quality of the Mississippi and other rivers. It's not a charming river. It's a mighty river. That's right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Blaine Harden. Blaine's book is A River Lost, The Life and Death of the Columbia. 
Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Pete is on the phone from North Bend, Washington. Pete, thanks for your call. Hey, thank you very much, Rick. Tell us about your experience on the river, Pete. I've had the opportunity to serve as a cruise director, historian, naturalist on small cruise ships that covered the section of the Columbia River from Astoria up to Lewiston. And even though there have been some drastic changes made on the river, I would have to say I, as well as my guests, truly enjoyed the experience of rolling along the Columbia River. The Columbia River Gorge is one of the most spectacular and most beautiful cruise trips I think anybody can take in the entire world. How so? What's so spectacular about the the gorge? You're first off crossing the lowest passage through the Cascades. You are seeing the beauty of the forest mountains, the Douglas firs, the Ponderosa Pines as you get over toward the east side, come right down to the water and from sea level, looking up, it just makes the peaks and the mountains that much more spectacular. And within a short distance, you'll see the waterfalls coming down the hillsides, down into the gorge area. And the wilderness forest is so incredibly beautiful. It just literally takes one's breath away. So you've got the Inland Empire, which is um, sort of a grandiose term for prairie country. And then you've got the gorge, which, you know, I never considered it, but yeah, obviously, the river goes east and west, and the Cascades go north and south, and at the Columbia Gorge, you've got Cascade Mountains immediately to your north and immediately to your south. It sounds just gorgeous. And as a, as a tour guide on a cruise ship, how about the Lewis and Clark lore? Where would you connect with that? Each small town mm-hmm. that you pass through does their best to try to inform the public about that, and as you drive along, there's a lot of markers that are marked with the Lewis and Clark Trail River Trail, and at those, the very spots, you can see some of the areas that they actually camped and stopped at and where they actually even believed that they were seeing the Pacific. And one of the things that I thought was extremely fascinating is how there was huge populations, a variety of different tribes along the Columbia River, and, of course, their main diet that they were blessed with was this abundant amount of fish. The fisheries were absolutely incredible, but the core of the discovery... They didn't particularly care for fish. The men didn't want to eat this wonderful fish Mm. source that came up the salmon, and their favorite food that they would trade their supplies for with the Indians would be, what would you guess that would be? Dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they would trade their supplies to get the Indians' dogs, and the Native Americans along the area thought it was so strange that these white men would come along and want to buy so many of their dogs to eat when they could be eating wow. fish right so, out of the river. Well, they had a little bit to learn about good seafood. Pete, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you very much, Rick. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Blaine Harden, and Blaine's book is A River Lost, The Life and Death of the Columbia. Blaine, Pete was talking about uh, the Lewis and Clark sites and uh, Indian sites. What's your experience if somebody wants to really connect with the uh, Native American heritage of the Columbia what would you advise? Well, my experience is, is somewhat different than, I think, tourists. I connected with the Colville tribe, which is above Grand Coulee Dam, which was a, a tribe that depended on the river. Their main fishing place was a place called Kettle Falls that was flooded after Grand Coulee was built and covered with Lake Roosevelt. That tribe went into a basically a half-century-long 
dive into alcoholism. But we see all this thriving fishing industry, and right. as soon as that's buried or, or right. flooded, right. the tribes that had a nice, viable economy right. become directionless, and it's the beginning of a downward spiral. Right, and it wasn't just the economy, although that was very important, and their diet. They ate an enormous amount of salmon every day, but their religion and their, their whole culture was based on fish. And when that was lost, they really were lost as a people. So that's the actual um, key point. And, and when you think of dams, you're thinking of really killing the meaning of the river to Native American communities that yeah. for centuries have grown right. up along the river. Right. I first did the reporting for this book in the early 90s. Since then, there's been some developments along the river that are, are much more hopeful for the Native Americans. The Colville tribes and some of the other tribes have had access to more fish because the hydro system is now run in a way that produces more fish. Uh, they figured out if you spill more water over dams rather than run it through turbines, you can spill the small smolts that are going downstream down through the river quickly, and they tend to come back. And so the salmon returns have been really quite strong, quite unexpectedly strong mm. in the past five years because of the contribution of science and because the hydro system, the power side, the power gentlemen, have been forced by the courts to run the system in a way that more closely resembles a natural river. So if, if we play it right, and if we're still around in 100 years... If you looked ahead, would you predict the Columbia would still be generating lots of energy and at the same time allowing uh, the fish environment to be uh, healthy? I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. Right. But the trend now is that the biologists are calling the shots in how the river is operated on its annual schedule under federal law, under the Endangered Species Act, and with the, with the support of the states. And this has helped bring salmon back. It's nowhere near what it once was. Is that a controversial issue between conservatives and liberals politically? Or does everybody say it can't just be nothing but power? We've got to protect it's the environment. It's less controversial in the Pacific Northwest than it would be elsewhere in the United States, given the toxic politics of the country at the moment. Most people who live in the Pacific Northwest see the value of salmon, and they're willing to spend a few pennies a day more for, yeah. for electricity. For having it the best possible on both ends. Right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Blaine Harden, who's written a fascinating book called A River Lost, Life and Death of the Columbia River. It's got such majesty. It's got such economic importance. It's so poignant for its Native American uh, concerns and heritage. When you think about the river, describe the saddest view and the happiest view. The saddest time I ever had at the river was in 1971, the year after I graduated from high school. I got a job. Uh, they were building a third powerhouse at Grand Coulee. But I complained too much and wrote too many safety reports. I was a laborer at the dam working the swing shift. My boss, a guy named Tex, thought I was too much of a smartass, basically. And I got fired in the middle of the night. My father had helped me to get that job. And I drove home with tears in my eyes away from the river having lost a job that my father had managed to hold his whole life. He worked on dams up and down the Columbia. Uh, I think the happiest moment of my life on the river was going back to Grand Coulee when my father was in his 80s to take a look at the river and to hear his stories about the construction of Grand Coulee Dam in the 30s and how it was such a wild, adventurous place. It was the greatest adventure of his life, and he saw the dam as an example of the finest work that men could do. 
And I think 40 years later, after you got fired on the Columbia for asking those hard questions, those questions might be taken a little more thoughtfully. Um, I think I was a little too full of myself at that point. I wasn't asking the right questions. I did as I wrote this book, but that took many years of work. And Blaine, to follow up on that, put me on a vantage point where I can really see the majesty of the Columbia River. I think to understand the power of the river is to go up on top of Grand Coulee Dam on those very few occasions when they're spilling the river over the top of the dam because there's so much water back there. The river just roars down this mile-high hunk of concrete, and it is just a frightening, terrifying, you can feel it in your bones that this is the most powerful hydroelectric resource in North America. And that's right there, a pretty powerful marriage between mankind and nature. Yeah. Blaine Harden, thanks very much. The book, A River Lost, The Life and Death of the Columbia. You just watch this river, though, pretty soon. Everybody's going to be changing their tune. The big grand coonie of Bonneville Dam will run a thousand factories for Uncle Sam and everybody else in the world. Turn out everything from fertilizer to sewing machines and atomic bedrooms and plastic. Everything's going to be plastic. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks for web help to Kate Mulhern-Graham and to Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.